It is time for June Patreon shoutouts, but before we do June, I have one from May I still have to do, so I want to say a very happy May birthday to Antoinette. And for June, as we're kicking off summer here and winter on the other side of the world, I want to say a happy birthday to Amanda, Amber, Deborah, JB, Jennifer, Joy, Julie, Kalina, Kelly, Chris, Patricia, Penny, Robin, Shelly, and Tiffany. Thank you so much for your support on Patreon and your support of Crime Lines in general. And I hope you have an amazing birth month with lots of celebration, lots of cake, maybe some balloons, a nice dinner out. However you celebrate, I hope it's amazing. Happy birthday. Between 1979 and 1982, five people disappeared or were murdered in the Lewiston-Clarkston metro area. This metro straddles the state line between Idaho and Washington. Though there is a person of interest who could be linked to four of the victims, the cases remain unsolved. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. I am back from Alaska, which was such an amazing trip. I can't really even put it into words. And I got to enjoy it with two of my older boys who are 18 and 20. So it was nice to have some time with just them where we could have these adventures and memories together. It was also great meeting people at the meetup that Josh and I held. And the next chance to see me is actually virtually. At the $5 and up Patreon levels, you can come to a Zoom meetup. I have all the dates and times capped at 10 people, so we're actually going to be able to have conversations. It's not like you're going to get on a Zoom call with 50, 60 people. I'll leave a link to the Patreon in the show notes along with the current available meetup times. If I need to add more days and times to accommodate everyone in this small group environment, I will. By running it through Patreon, this also gives you access to all the past bonus episodes and ad-free Crime Lines episodes for the month of June, even if you sign up and then immediately cancel all future payments. I do add two new bonus episodes a month at the $5 level, plus you get all episodes early and ad-free, so you may be interested in sticking around. But if all you want is to get on there, binge listen to bonus episodes, and say hi to me on Zoom, that is totally fine. So again, that information is in the show notes. Let's get into today's episode. We are covering five cases that may be connected to each other. Well, three of them are definitely connected. The other two, it's not clear. And it's not just geography that links most of them, though that's definitely something we are considering here. These all took place in a metro area known as the Lewiston-Clarkston Metro, or just Lewis-Clark Valley. This straddles the state line between Idaho and Washington. On the Idaho side, the city is Lewiston, and on the Washington side, it's Clarkston. These cities are named for the explorers Lewis and Clark, who had once camped in the area. And that's also why it's sometimes just abbreviated to Lewis-Clark Valley. In total, this area is around 1,500 square miles. Lewiston is the larger city of about 32,000 people, and Clarkston is the smaller one with about 7,000 people. They are divided by the Snake River, which is also the state border. And it really reminds me of Kansas City, Missouri, and Kansas City, Kansas, just on a smaller scale. Contrary to popular belief, Kansas City, Missouri, and Kansas City, Kansas aren't the same city. That's just located in two states. I mean, how would that even work, logistically speaking? These are actually two different cities entirely. And KCMO has the larger population, nearing half a million people, and KCK has about 150,000 people. The two cities are also divided by a river that is also the state line. 
And the area on the whole is known as the Casey Metro, so very similar to the Lewiston-Clarkston Metro. But like I said, more people here. The Casey Metro has over 2 million people. The Lewis-Clark Valley has around 64,000 total today, but in the time frame we're discussing, it was more like 45,000. And being a less densely populated area, it is known for its natural scenery and whitewater rivers, canyons, and lots and lots of trees. Also, with the lower population density, they have historically less crime than a metro like Kansas City, which is part of why these five cases really stood out for residents in the area. This is one of those places that can say things like that don't happen here. So let's start with the first case, the first disappearance, chronologically speaking which occurred on April 28th, 1979. 12-year-old Christina White was living with her mom and stepdad in Asotin, Washington at the time. Asotin is a small town with no more than a 1,000 residents, and it's one of those towns that kids would just go out and play unsupervised. They showed back up when they were supposed to, and they weren't really closely supervised or monitored and they were expected to look out for each other. On April 28, 1979, Christina went with her mom, Betty, and her sister to watch the parade that opened the Asotin County Fair every April. The parade was downtown, but when I say downtown in a town of fewer than a thousand people, I mean, let's, let's bring down our imaginations a little bit. We're talking a couple of blocks. There is a courthouse there some county offices, a school, a church, not much more than a couple of blocks. After the parade finished, Betty brought Christina over to her friend Rose's house, which was a few blocks from downtown, so basically where the street turned into a quiet residential neighborhood. Christina and Rose planned to then ride their bikes to the fair. Betty watched as Christina went into Rose's house, and then she left to go home. Christina and Rose went to the fair where Christina started not feeling well. She thought it was due to the heat because she had had issues with the hot weather before. So around 2.30 p.m., she went back to Rose's house. She called her mom, Betty, from the house, but Betty was not able to go pick her up right then because she didn't have access to the family car at that point. Betty recommended that Christina get a cool, damp cloth, put it on her neck, lie down for a bit, and then when she felt better, Betty told her she could ride her bike home and Betty would watch for her. It was about five blocks from Rose's house to a specific corner where Betty could see Christina from their home, which was a few blocks beyond that. So Christina was really only expected to go five blocks unsupervised, and then Betty would watch her for the last couple. Betty assumed Christina would call when she felt better to let her know she was heading home. When Christina did not call, Betty assumed she decided to go back to the fair instead when she was feeling better. Later that day, Betty went to the fair to pick Christina up, and that's when she learned Christina had never made it back to the fairgrounds. Christina had seemingly left Rose's house on her bike, and on the way to wherever she was headed, whether it was back to the fair or back home, Christina and her bicycle disappeared. The 12-year-old was reported missing to a police department that had never had a missing persons case. And the police chief later admitted that he didn't really know where to start with this case because not only had he never experienced it, he had also never had any training in missing persons cases or investigations. But they started with the common sense approach, which is to say they began searching. The initial thought was that Christina had just gone off somewhere, maybe to a friend's house, and just didn't tell her mom. So that's where the immediate search focused. 
When they couldn't find Christina that night, the worry became that she had gotten lost or possibly hurt somewhere along her bike route. The next day, Christina's dad and his friend who owned a helicopter searched from above while others were on the ground. But due to the inexperience of the police with cases like this, and the number of volunteer community searchers who also didn't have experience in this, the search was reportedly disorganized, and it wasn't clear which areas had been cleared and which still needed to be searched. Due to the terrain and the vast area, some of which was inaccessible to cars, this was the type of search that absolutely needed someone at the helm, working the maps so they covered all the places they needed to. Unfortunately, that just didn't happen here. One angle they did not spend much time on was the runaway theory. They discounted that early on. For one thing, there were no disagreements or arguments at home. Quite the contrary, Christina had just called her mother asking to be picked up and taken home. Christina had plans to go see her father soon, plus all of the usual fun things you do in spring and summer, like baseball games and camping trips. Whatever was keeping Christina away from home was something outside of her control. And to get more information on what this thing could be, the investigator spoke with Rose's family, After all, their house was the last place Christina was seen. At the home on the day Christina went missing was Rose's mother's boyfriend, who we will call Lloyd because that's the name the random name generator spit out. His name is out on the internet, but it has not been officially released by the police, so I'm not going to use it. Though there seemed to be some dispute in the reporting over whether he was at home the day Christina was there, it seems likely that he was because he mentioned at one point that he got her the cold rag that her mother suggested she use to feel better. Obviously, if I'm using a fake name for Lloyd, You've probably already figured out that he was a person of interest in Christina's disappearance, and he continues to be. It's not entirely clear why. Some reporting indicates that Betty, Christina's mom, was the first to bring his name up. Additionally, he was one of the last, if not the last, people to have seen Christina. He also showed up to help search, but without being specific, the police said that they saw his attempts as inserting himself in the investigation and not a genuine desire to help. Within a couple of weeks of Christina going missing, a local farmer named Carl Flynn was out in his horse pasture when he saw a bunch of papers scattered out near a feeder. He collected them and noticed that they were school papers with Christina White's name on them. Obviously, being the only missing child in town, Carl immediately knew the significance and called the police. According to Carl, the papers were in good enough condition that it didn't look like they had been exposed to the elements for long, maybe a day or two at most, before they blew into his field. They certainly didn't seem like they had been out there for the weeks since Christina had gone missing. Carl's farm was on the western outskirts off of a Soton County road, making it possible that someone had tossed the papers from a car window as they passed by and the wind took them onto the property. So someone wanted to make sure they were not caught with Christina's school papers, and it stands to reason that that person was likely responsible for her disappearance. And since it looked like the papers hadn't been dumped for a few weeks, 
After her disappearance, it's pretty clear that this had to have been a local. An opportunistic abductor just passing through could have dumped them anywhere, and it seemed unlikely that person would be back in town a few weeks later. It does not look like they found any other evidence at the Flynn farm, or at least nothing they've made public. We do know that the 10-speed bicycle Christina went missing with has not been found. The case eventually grew cold and is currently being overseen by a new detective, Jackie Nichols, and she's a big part of why people know about this case today. She has done a lot of work on the investigation, but also getting this story back in the media in the hopes that new leads will come in. Detective Nichols does have a theory of the crime, just not the evidence to prove it in a court of law. She believes that after Christina's mother couldn't come and get her, Lloyd offered to give her a ride home. Christina knew him and would have trusted him as an adult figure in her friend's house. So Christina willingly went with him, loading her bicycle into his vehicle. Lloyd owned a house between Rose's house and Christina's house. At the time of her disappearance, it was empty. Detective Nichols believes Christina may have been lured into that house. At the time of Christina's disappearance, the house's basement was unfinished, and some parts of it even had a dirt floor. A rumor went around town that Lloyd had poured a new floor over some of that dirt in the basement after Christina White's disappearance. The police did bring cadaver dogs to this house. They even used ground-penetrating radar. A six-foot by eight-foot section was detected as having an anomaly, so they dug it up, but they found nothing. This does not rule out that something happened in the house, but that Christina was then moved to another location. This theory does come in part due to a different witness who came forward about her own strange experience with Lloyd in that same house later on. Lloyd was getting ready to sell this house, and the woman was there to look at it. One source said she was actually a realtor, and Lloyd was thinking of listing the property with her. Regardless, she showed up, and Lloyd was there to show her around. This woman said that Lloyd was particularly interested in showing her the basement, talking about all of the work and the improvements he had done down there. So as they went down to the basement, she went first down the stairs with Lloyd behind her. And at one point, feeling a little uneasy, she turned around. And there she saw Lloyd with his hand up high over his head. When he saw her, he quickly put his arm down. She saw that he had something in his hand, so she asked him what it was. He said it was nothing and tried to just move on like everything was fine, nothing had happened. But she insisted that he show her what he was holding. And when he did, she said it looked like the decorative top from a wood bedpost. Definitely the sort of thing you could have clobbered someone with. And something it seemed odd Lloyd would just be carrying around the house. Lloyd then asked the woman if anyone knew she was there, and she said lots of people knew. Lloyd was then less interested in showing her the house, and the woman got out of there as soon as she could. And that's part of why this house, and particularly that basement, was something the police wanted to look more into in regards to Christina's disappearance. However, no evidence was found. That's basically where this case stands, a lot of suspicion and not a lot of evidence. The case does remain open and it is being investigated. 
Christina White was last seen wearing blue jeans, red leather sneakers, and possibly a tan and pink striped shirt. The Charlie Project does have an age progression available if you want to see that, because if alive today, Christina would be in her 50s. Her bicycle, which is still missing, was a white 10-speed with a basket on the front. From what I've seen with other old cold cases, bicycles do not stand up to the elements very well over time. Even though Christina had just gotten that bike for her March birthday, after 40-plus years, it would be hard to recognize. However, it did have three-inch wing nuts on the front wheels, which were distinctive. And that's the best chance at connecting a found, rusted-out old bicycle to Christina's case. So hopefully if someone does find a rusted-out frame, they will bring it forward. I will leave the numbers for where to contact the authorities with any information on Christina White's disappearance or any of the cases we talk about today in the show notes. And as we often see in small communities that don't experience crime regularly, Christina's disappearance changed how people parented, at least in the short term. They began keeping a closer eye on their kids, requiring them to check in more often, especially that first summer, even though the kids were used to these long days of just being free. There was a fear this could happen to anyone. And then it did happen again about three and a half years later when another shocking crime happened. Not one person went missing, but three. And just 30 minutes away from where Christina White was last seen. 21-year-old Christina Nelson was attending the Lewis Clark State College in Lewiston, Idaho, and studying to become an accountant. She had worked at one point as a custodian at the Lewiston Civic Theater, where she also had some of her artwork displayed. Christina had an 18-year-old stepsister named Brandy Miller, who had recently moved in with her. The reporting makes it sound like it may have been temporary, as Brandy was newly in town. She either attended Lewis Clark State College or she was planning to. And through Christina, Brandy made social connections to the Lewiston Civic Theater. On September 12, 1982, around 10 p.m., Brandy told her boyfriend's mom that she was headed back to Christina's place because they planned to go shopping. Brandy then left and headed in the direction of Christina's apartment. Christina's boyfriend was supposed to go over there that night. They had last spoken on the phone around 8.30 but he was tired and ended up not going until the next day. And when he got there, he found a note on the door. It said that Christina and Brandy were headed to the local Safeway grocery store, and then they planned to do laundry. Based on what Brandy had told her boyfriend's mother and Christina anticipating her boyfriend coming over the night before, that note was probably left up there all night. The day went on and Christina's boyfriend didn't hear from her and neither did anyone else. And then she didn't show up for work and she was then reported missing. And then it was discovered that no one had heard from Brandy either. The police went out to the apartment and found that everything looked normal. They saw the note on the door that Christina had left and found most of the women's personal items left behind. It looked like they had just stepped out of the apartment for a quick errand and vanished. Like often happens, the police saw this as two young adults who didn't check in with their family or their boyfriends before they stayed out all night, or maybe they were crashing at a friend's place. Surely that was all there was to it. The families didn't believe that was the case, so they started their own search immediately. Then, just hours after the sisters were reported missing, the police were contacted by another family. 35-year-old Stephen Pearsall, who also lived in Lewiston, hadn't been heard from since the night of September 12th, around the same time the young women would have been out shopping. Stephen actually knew both of the sisters. 
He worked as a custodian at that same theater. He actually took over for Christina when she quit. From what I've read, everyone who worked in the theater or participated in it in some way knew each other and were largely in the same social circle. Not just that, but Stephen did live a few doors down from the sisters, and reportedly, Brandy and Christina looked at him as a bit of an older brother. Earlier in the evening on the 12th, Stephen had been at the theater. They were prepping for a run of Pirates of Penzance, so things at the theater were a bit busy, and he wasn't the only one there working. But Stephen left to go to a party with his girlfriend, returning again around midnight. When his girlfriend dropped him off, he said he was going to practice his clarinet and do some laundry. As a custodian, he did have keys to the theater and could get in after hours. Stephen walked into the theater through the basement door, and then his girlfriend drove off. This was witnessed by three other people who were going past the theater at the same time. Two of the people were a couple, and the third was a patrolman. So we know Stephen definitely went into that theater. And that was the last sighting of Stephen Pearsall. With three people from the same social circle going missing from the same town on the same night, obviously these were investigated as a connected incident. Since none of the three took anything with them, investigators quickly dismissed the idea that the three of them decided to run off together. Christina and Brandy were last believed to be at Christina's apartment, leaving the note and then heading towards the grocery store. There are two likely ways they would have gone to the grocery store, and one of them would have taken them right by the theater. And if they went the other way, the store and the theater were pretty close together. So what if they went inside the theater for some reason, where Stephen was, and then something happened? There turned out to be no evidence of this because a search of the theater didn't give any clues that something happened there. There were no signs of a struggle or blood spatter or any of the things they would be looking for. Early on, the police did consider that they were not looking at three victims, but rather two victims and one perpetrator who was now on the run. Those who knew Stephen could not believe that he would be considered a suspect, but it was a possibility the police had to look into. Looking at Stephen's profile, they saw nothing in his personality or his past that would fit that of a kidnapper and possible killer. He was mild-mannered, he was passive, and he had no history of violence. Plus, they found Stephen's car was still in town. It was parked at a friend's house. He had left behind a paycheck as well, and it was believed he only had about $10 on him at the time. No car and virtually no money would have made it really difficult to kidnap people and then go on the run. How would he have gotten Christina and Brandy out of the theater into a second location without a car? People who knew Stephen pointed out that his clarinet was found still at the theater, and they believed that's something, even if he had kidnapped two people and went on the run, he would have taken with him. I'm not sure that's necessarily conclusive evidence, but it is Another thing he left behind, in addition to his money, his car, his clothes, all of his belongings, to make me doubt that he left of his own free will. And that is what investigators came to believe. These were three missing people who, through some series of events, went missing against their will at the same time. While these cases will eventually be linked to 12-year-old Christina White, and I'll explain why soon, they weren't initially linked in the media. They were instead reported on along with the disappearances of 18-year-old Jennifer Vincent and 2-year-old Ricky Barnett. 
all five had gone missing within 11 days of each other in roughly the same area. But these cases would not be connected for long. Jennifer was found clinging to life three days after she went missing. She had wrecked her car and was trapped for 64 hours before someone spotted the car in the tall grass. Suffering a spinal fracture, she spent a long time recovering from her injuries. And Ricky Barnett had been outside at his grandparents' farm about an hour from Lewiston. He was sitting outside while dozens of workers were around unloading a shipment of chickens. At some point in all of that movement, Ricky went missing. An extensive search found no sign of him, and he is still missing. With these cases happening in just a week and a half span in communities that rarely have missing persons cases, they were all reported on together, but it is very clear they are not related. I mean, Brandy and Christina obviously going missing together were surely linked, and then the odds that Stephen's case wasn't linked to theirs is slim to none. A theory emerged that Brandy and Christina were the targets. As they possibly passed the theater that night, they were abducted, having been lured inside first. And Stephen, showing up unexpectedly at the theater very late at night, walked in on the abductor in action. It was the wrong place at the wrong time for him. There was someone else known to be in the theater that night. At the same time, Stephen was seen by his girlfriend, a couple, and a patrolman walking into the building. And that person is the person we are calling Lloyd for the purposes of this episode. So the last person to see Christina White before she disappeared was also at the location the police believe three people vanished from. This coincidence, was immediately spotted by investigators, and Lloyd was brought in for an interview. He was nervous speaking with the police in this interview, and they noticed that he was struggling to keep eye contact while he fidgeted around. This reaction definitely made the investigators side-eye him, even though being nervous when speaking with the police is pretty common. What's more interesting to me is this story that Lloyd told about what happened that night. He said he arrived at the theater around 6 to get some work done for the production that was coming up. He saw Stephen arrive around 7.30 and then leave between 9 and 9.15. Lloyd kept working, but things weren't going well with what he was trying to do, so he gave up and headed down to a bar that is down the street. He then watched a movie and was back to the theater around 11 p.m. Lloyd said he got back to what he was doing, and he wasn't sure if he was by the stage much, but he did have to work on some rigging, so he was up in this loft attic area. He said while he was up there, he had a misstep. He missed the rafter, and his foot went through the plaster. Having this near fall from a great height, he said he was a little shaky, so he went downstairs and stretched out on the couch in the green room, and at that point, he dozed off. Now, this green room door was near the door Stephen was last seen walking into. The police asked Lloyd about this. Would he really have not woken up if Stephen walked in, turned on the lights, started practicing his clarinet, or worked on a cleaning checklist? Lloyd agreed it would have been odd if he didn't wake up since he was normally a light sleeper. Lloyd may not have realized that the police weren't questioning him if Stephen had made it into the theater that night. They knew he did since four people saw him. So Lloyd saying that he was a light sleeper and he would have heard Stephen if he made it inside was not in his favor, and it actually seemed to implicate him. Lloyd did say that the phone rang at one point in the night and woke him up, but he didn't answer it. He later found out it was his wife calling. 
other than that phone call, which he didn't even answer, he really didn't have any information about what happened that night after he fell asleep. As far as verifying Lloyd's story, that was hard because the story was mostly nothing. He didn't see or hear anything related to Stephen, Christina, or Brandy, and he slept through whatever did happen. There was an area of the plaster that looked like someone had gone through it, like Lloyd said, but it couldn't be determined if it was recent or if it was an existing hole that Lloyd wove into his story. As for the call from his wife, like I said, he didn't answer it. He didn't talk to her, so he couldn't prove he heard the phone ring. Later on, according to the cold case investigator, Detective Nichols, Lloyd said he regretted he admitted that he was at the theater at all that night since it put him on the suspect list. And that's a fair point to him, because why not just deny being in the area at all during that time frame that they went missing if he had something to do with it? On the other hand, he knew his wife called the theater looking for him. So he knew she knew he never made it home that night, and he was going to have to have some explanation. Whether he was at the theater or elsewhere, he had to come up with something. So the case was making slow progress for the next year and a half. One of the biggest issues was they had no crime scene. They were following up on leads, but nothing led to any answers until March 19, 1984. A teenager walking down a highway embankment near Kendrick, Idaho, spotted decomposed human remains at the base of a tree. This spot is about 30 miles northeast of Lewiston. The remains were actually not that far from the highway. It looked like someone had quickly dumped the remains at the side of the road and they rolled down just enough to be out of sight from the roadway. It was quickly determined that these were two bodies, both female, and with having two missing sisters from just half an hour away, it was quickly suspected that these were the bodies of Christina and Brandy. They were found with clothing and jewelry, which did help get a preliminary identification that was then confirmed through dental records. A search of the area uncovered no sign of Stephen Pearsall's remains. It was announced to the media that at least one of the bodies had signs of homicide. They found at the scene a length of cording similar to what is used for clotheslines. It also happens to be similar to what the Lewiston Civic Theater used for curtain pulleys. It's not clear how the cord at the scene compared to what was at the theater because that has not been released. The police interviewed Lloyd for a second time on March 22nd, days after the bodies were found. They told him right away that Brandy and Christina's remains were found and he was at the top of their suspect list. They asked Lloyd to go over the details again about what happened the night Brandy, Christina, and Stephen went missing. The details of his story did change a bit, including some minor discrepancies in the timeline that can be chalked up to memory recall issues that just happen with time. But Lloyd added that after getting back to the theater after the bar and movie, he had moved his vehicle closer to the building so that he could load up his tools. And then he fell asleep on the couch between 11.30 and midnight, which was right around the time Stephen would have arrived. Lloyd said he woke up at 5 a.m. and called his wife. He assumed she would wonder where he was all night, and he didn't want her to be worried. Lloyd then got into his car and started to drive home, but then he realized his wife would have already left for work, so he went back to the theater instead. He still insisted he didn't hear Stephen come into the theaters, which still didn't make sense to investigators. And Lloyd's alibi of being asleep at the theater just didn't ring true because it wasn't something that he had done before. The police asked his wife about it, and she said it was the first time it had ever happened. So, the one and only time Lloyd fell asleep at work happened to be the same night 
at least one person went missing from the theater, and two others from at least that area, if not the theater itself. During the interview with Lloyd, he was asked if he had any past run-ins with the law, and he fessed up to a June 1972 arrest in San Jose, California. He said he was cutting across a funeral home parking lot, and someone called it in as a prowler. He made it sound like a big misunderstanding and said it was initially charged as an attempted burglary, but later reduced to a misdemeanor. And I mean, that certainly is one version of the story, but it's quite different than what the police found when they contacted authorities in California about it. Lloyd had actually been caught breaking into the funeral home when the owner saw him. He was dressed in all black and was carrying a knife, a flashlight, and a camera. When he was caught, he was cutting through the screen, which is a bit different than what he said of cutting through a parking lot. Now, you may be thinking of the things he was carrying and wondering why he brought a camera to a funeral home break-in. According to what Lloyd told the owner, he was going in there to see his girlfriend. The only body in the funeral home at the time was that of 17-year-old Antoinette Anino. A couple of days before this attempted break-in, Antoinette was found around 3.30 in the morning in the water, not far off the shore. The police found no obvious signs of trauma. Her clothes were gone, but she was still wearing a watch and a cross pendant. The death was ruled a suicide by drowning, though there were some suspicious elements to it, including that she was last seen arguing with her boyfriend up on the boardwalk. The two walked down to the beach, and then the boyfriend left, reportedly telling Antoinette to meet him back up on the boardwalk when she calmed down. It wasn't long after this that the boardwalk closed for the night, and when the boyfriend went to look for her, he couldn't find her. So Lloyd said he was there to see his girlfriend one last time, and the only body in the funeral home was someone who was last seen alive by her boyfriend. And he went in there with a camera. But the Lewiston police wouldn't find out about this added information until they checked into the incident, so they didn't confront Lloyd with it during the questioning. They did ask him to take a polygraph, which he declined. He then hired an attorney, and most questioning stopped after that. The investigation into Lloyd continued, even without his cooperation, and it showed that there were a few people out there who said he was an odd person, he was eccentric, he was theatrical. And while there wasn't a clear history of violence, the investigators found that most people also were not shocked when they learned he was a person of interest in multiple murders and disappearances. Stephen is still considered a missing person, but foul play is suspected. And just like with the Christina White disappearance, the cold case detective Nichols has a theory of how this happened. She does not believe Christina and Brandy went past the theater, since it doesn't really make sense to get from Christina's apartment to the grocery store. It is one possible path, but it's the longer of the two. The other way to go is considerably shorter and more direct. This shorter path would have taken them past the same bar Lloyd said he was drinking at that night. So perhaps they were walking past the bar, they start talking to Lloyd, and he suggests maybe they go to the theater after they're done shopping. That's where his vehicle was, so perhaps he could even give them a ride home. They then met Lloyd at the theater, and Stephen walked in and saw something he shouldn't have. He was then killed to cover it up. Lloyd had told the police that he moved his car so he could load his tools. What if it wasn't tools he loaded, and he came up with that story just in case a witness had seen his vehicle pulled up to the building? 
Lloyd or whoever did this, then put the women's bodies where they would be found. And then Stephen's body was put somewhere else so it would look like he had murdered them and ran. It's really just speculation at this point. Detective Nichols' theory could apply to other people because Kristen and Brandy certainly knew more people in town who they could have run into. There is some circumstantial evidence implicating Lloyd in at least whatever happened to Stephen. And if you link all three cases, then the link to Stephen links him to Kristen and Brandy. But I have to point out, there is a lack of direct evidence here. There were no forensics that we know of that link Lloyd to this case, whether at the theater or at the site where the bodies were dumped. I mean, even a faulty in-the-dark eyewitness would be more than they have in this case so far, or at least more than they have made public. So there is a fifth case that is included in the Lewis Clark Valley murders umbrella, and it's possibly linked, but it doesn't have a tie that's quite so clear as the others. And that's the case of Kristen David. Kristen was born in late 1958 in South Dakota. Her parents divorced with her mother living in the Lewis Clark Valley and her father living out in western Washington. As for Kristen, she split her time between Lewiston and Moscow, Idaho, which is where she was attending school at the University of Idaho. She was majoring in broadcast journalism and political science. On June 25th, 1981, which is two years after Christina White disappeared and three months before Brandy, Christina, and Stephen would disappear, Kristen told her mother that she was going to come to Lewiston on the 26th. She was going to ride her bike down from Moscow, and there were two routes she could have taken, both of them being just over 30 miles. Her plan was to leave around 10 or 11 a.m., and it would take about three hours, give or take 15 minutes, depending on the route. Kristen liked cycling, and even her mom mentioned that she wished she could take the trip with her because it would be such a nice, scenic ride. Kristen did have to be to work that afternoon in Lewiston, so she was leaving with plenty of time to get there. On the 26th, Kristen's work called her sister Anne. Kristen had never made it there. Her family was immediately concerned and went to the police who heard that a 22-year-old college student flaked on showing up to work. They told the family that they were going to have to wait 48 hours before doing anything. So Kristen's family began looking for her themselves. On this 30-ish mile ride, Kristen could have been hit by a car, fallen, had bike trouble, was overcome by the June heat. Who knows what could have happened? They drove and walked along the road, checking ditches and even outbuildings that they came across. They didn't find Kristen or her bike. When the police investigation finally started, they started in Moscow to see if Kristen had even left. Her bicycle was gone, and the neighbors said they heard her getting her bike down that morning. So then the police followed the paths from Moscow to Lewiston to see if there were any witnesses along the way. The strongest lead was from a farmer named James Archibald in Genesee, Idaho a little more than halfway on Kristen's journey. And the good thing about this sighting was that they didn't have to entirely rely on James's memory because he had actually contacted the police about what he saw the same day it happened. James had been driving on U.S. Highway 95 when he passed a brown van with Oregon plates. The van was pulled over to the side of the road. As James was passing by, a man got out of the van and walked to the back, where a blonde woman was lying on the ground. Her bicycle was nearby, and the back wheel was still turning. The woman, as far as James could tell, was not moving, and he thought there must have been a collision, and the van had knocked her over. 
Assuming this man was getting out of his van to go check on the woman, James did the best thing he could do at the time, and he drove straight home to call for an ambulance. He gave all of the information he had. However, when the EMTs got to the site, they saw nothing. No bike, no woman, and no brown van. James later said that while he was focused on getting help for the cyclist on the ground, he did notice something about the man that disturbed him. He said he did not have the impression as the man walked towards the woman that he was upset or concerned the way you would expect. He recalls that the man was actually smiling as he walked towards the woman. James did sit down to help create a sketch of this mystery man, but he had really only seen him for a short amount of time, so it was all pretty vague. He did give the basic stats of the man. 25 to 35 years old, 150 pounds, average height, certainly under six feet tall. Of course, the brown van lead was followed up on and multiple vans were stopped and the drivers questioned, but none of them appeared connected to the case. And Kristen remained a missing person for just over a week before her remains were found on July 4th, 1981. A man was fishing along the Snake River and he saw a trash bag floating downstream. When he pulled it out, he found that it contained a human torso and a leg. He looked around and saw another bag, and then he called the police. By the time the police arrived, it was already dark, so they conducted a search of the river the next day. They then found additional bags with more body parts. In total, there were five bags spread out over six miles of the river. In one of the bags, they found the head and also the arms, which aided in the identification of the remains as those of 22-year-old Kristen David. All of the dismembered parts had been carefully and tightly wrapped in newspaper. The dismemberment was not medical, but it wasn't amateurish either so they believed they were looking for either a butcher or a hunter with experience butchering their own kills. In this area of the United States, I'm going to say that does not narrow the field by much. A greater search of the area found blood on the railing of the Red Wolf Crossing Bridge upstream from where the bags were located. While the blood has not been confirmed to be Kristen's, it seems a likely location for the body to have gone into the water. There have been some rumors out there about how Kristen was killed, but the police have not released this information and specifically said it is holdback information. Holdback information is very important in a case to verify confessions or witness statements, and believe it or not, fake information getting out there in a rumor is also helpful. If a report is out there giving the wrong cause of death, any confession or statement that includes the incorrect information can quickly be dismissed. One thing that has been released is that the killer was very likely local to the area. For one thing, there wouldn't have been the need to take the time to try and hide the body this well if the person was just passing through and unlikely to be connected to the crime. And the other indication this was someone local is that the newspapers used to wrap the body parts were local papers from April, so nearly three months earlier. Only people in the area would have three-month-old local newspapers laying around. The FBI did eventually take over Kristen David's case because it spanned multiple cities, counties, and even two states. The evidence is being held at the Salt Lake City Field Office, which covers Utah, Idaho, and Montana. Over the years, the evidence has been re-examined using new forensic technology. In both the 1990s and then again in 2008, they processed items at the FBI lab, but the results of those tests have not been made public. The information they do have from the case was entered into databases to compare to other cases in the region that might be similar. 
They did have a lead with another unsolved case in Colorado that did have a suspect. This suspect was in the military at one point, and in tracking his travels, there was reason to believe he was in western Idaho at the time Kristen went missing. He has not been named, and as this is a cold case, obviously it didn't lead to any answers. The information about the brown van in the area was published in 2009, and after it was, a woman reached out to authorities. She said the same summer Kristen David disappeared, she was running west of Clarkston when a man driving a brown van pulled up and insisted she take a ride from him. She said no, and it struck her as alarming on how persistent he was being but she never connected that incident to Kristen's case before because she didn't know a brown van was possibly involved. The information she did provide to the police so far has not led to the van or the driver. So how does Kristen's case link to the others we talked about? I will say proximity is the main point. Kristen David's remains were found about 10 to 15 minutes away from where Christina White disappeared. Kristen was also a 22-year-old woman, which is the same age range as both Brandy Miller and Christina Nelson. And for a more superficial similarity, she went missing while riding a bike, just like Christina White may have. As for there being a link to Lloyd, There are stories that Kristen had been involved in the Lewiston Civic Theater, and she did live in the area, so it is possible she knew him. He was known to drive in the area she went missing from and had access to a brown van. From what I can tell, those are the strongest links to the other cases. There are ways that Kristen's case differs from the others, and I have to say in ways that I think are stronger than the similarities. The most glaring one is the dismemberment. It's a different kind of killer who can then detach enough to dismember a body. That wasn't done with the other two bodies found. Kristen's case has been investigated separately from the others, though in 1990 there was a cold case review done to see if Christina White's disappearance, the Lewiston Civic Theater cases, and the murder of Kristen David were linked, And the Lewiston police and the Asotan County Sheriff both worked to look at these cases. The hope had been that if they put all of their evidence together, all of their thoughts and theories and brain power together, they would be able to see if this was all connected. But they were not able to make a definitive ruling on that. Even Christina White's case is hard to link to the Lewiston Civic Theater cases. If you think Lloyd was responsible, then there seems to be a clear link. He's connected to all of the victims and the places they went missing from. But what is the link between them other than Lloyd? So let's say he didn't do it. The circumstances of the disappearances are different, and Christina was a child, whereas the others were adults. If not for Lloyd, I'm not sure that these cases would be assumed to be linked. If you go online and decide to look up the Lewis Clark Valley murders, serial killer, you're looking at the information on Lloyd, you will see that people are looking at a lot more cases than this. They're looking at other places he lived and things he may or may not have been involved in. They have varying degrees of circumstantial evidence to them, and there are only two that stood out to me as ones that I wanted to mention in this episode as well. The first of them was not a murder or disappearance at all. It was more just creepy behavior. I'm not really sure if this even fits in anywhere in here, but I did think it was worth bringing up. This incident occurred in 1996 when a woman named Crystal was out fishing with her family. She was walking back to where her family had been camping when a truck pulled up to her. The man driving said he was lost, and Crystal said that her family was just down the road fishing and they could probably give him directions. The man told her to hop in the truck and he would drive her down there to then ask for directions. 
This may not have seemed so unusual, except that the bridge was really close to them. It didn't make sense to need a ride down there. Crystal's dad was in line of sight, so Crystal told the man that she would just walk over there. The man looked in the direction of the bridge and, seeming to have seen Crystal's dad, said, never mind, and then he drove off. Obviously, if this man really needed directions, this interaction and the driving off made no sense. But that's not the end of the story. Later that night, Crystal's cousin Daryl and his wife Teresa were camping in the area overnight, even after everyone else had gone home. They were sitting around the campfire when Teresa noticed a man pop his head up. Teresa told Daryl she just saw someone, so he turned around to look but didn't see him. A few minutes later, Teresa saw the man again. He just popped his head up and then was hidden again by the time Daryl looked. This creeped them out so much that Daryl went and got his gun and then they packed up and left. In talking to Crystal, they believe this was the same man who had been asking for directions. So fast forward to some point after this and Daryl and Teresa were at a fair about an hour away in Orofino, Idaho. They saw a band playing, and one of the guys looked like the guy Teresa saw at the campsite. So Teresa said something about it to the person she was with, and that person mentioned that that was Lloyd, and that he was a suspect in multiple murders and disappearances. There is yet another case where Lloyd was actually interviewed And this was another case of a missing child. This happened back in 1963 when Lloyd was a teenage camp counselor at a YMCA on the west side of Chicago. It was Thursday, August 1st, 1963, when eight-year-old Diane Taylor went to the Austin YMCA where she attended day camp. A bit after 2 p.m., one of Diane's friends said she left the Y and she was walking in the alley behind the building. That is the last time she was seen alive. When Diane didn't make it home that evening, her mother called the police and reported her missing. The little girl's body was found two days later, a mile away. She had been sexually assaulted and stabbed to death. Because Lloyd was a camp counselor who lived in the area, he was interviewed by police along with 750 other young men in the area, and there was nothing that made him stick out as a suspect at the time. Diane's case remains unsolved, though the authorities in the Lewis-Clark Valley have sent the information they have over to the Chicago police, and it was reportedly enough to reopen the case. I haven't seen an update on that since 2020. I know I've spent a lot of time on Lloyd in this episode, but that's because he's the only person of interest announced. But that doesn't mean he was the only lead followed up on. It's worth looking at the other theories in this case, or rather cases, because I do think it's smart to think of them separately until a stronger link is made. One non-Lloyd theory explored was Robert Lee Yates. Yates was a serial killer operating mostly in the Spokane area from 1975 through 1998. He has been connected to 11 murders in Spokane, two in the Walla Walla area, another in Mount Vernon, two in Pierce County, and probably more he never admitted to. 23 years is a long time to be an active serial killer, so 16 would be the low end if we're talking about total victims killed by Yates. There isn't much here to connect Yates to the Lewis-Clark Valley murders other than being in the state of Washington. Most of his murders occurred at least two hours from Lewiston, and from the victims who were found, comparing it to the victims who were found in this case, the MO is different. It is interesting to note here, though, that Lloyd was interviewed by the Spokane police in 1998 for a murder that Yates later confessed to. It seems like we can't venture too far in this case without bringing up Lloyd. There was another non-Lloyd person who was looked at closely, and that was Harry Anthony Hantman. 
His story is a winding road, but I'm going to try to sum it up. In 1973, Hantman escaped from a Washington, D.C. psychiatric hospital for the criminally insane. He was sent there after he was found not guilty by reason of insanity in 1969 for raping and murdering an 11-year-old. After fleeing the area, he settled in the Pacific Northwest under the alias Thomas Dorian, the identity of someone who had died that same year. He stayed under the radar for 20 years until 1993. Though he wasn't entirely under the radar. In 1989, he was convicted for kidnapping, assault, and carrying a concealed weapon in Oregon. He was sent to the state penitentiary, but his real identity wasn't uncovered at this time. It wasn't until 1993 when he was arrested in Lewiston for kidnapping and raping an Oregon State University exchange student that his real identity became known. Under the name Thomas Dorian, Hantman had lived in a cabin about two hours south of the Lewis Clark Valley. The cabin had a chain-link fence all around it, which the neighbors found odd because they lived in such a rural area and he had no livestock he was trying to keep penned in. Hantman also had solid metal doors and bars installed over the windows. Again, something uncommon in such a remote area. Over the years, Hantman also owned several vehicles, which included a van. Like Yates, it seems geography is the main reason Hantman was on the list. He was known to be in the Lewis-Clark Valley, even living in Lewiston at some point. And of course, there's the fact that the investigators don't believe that in 20 years on the run, he only kidnapped and attacked two women. He has not been ruled out as far as I can tell. And of course, we have Otis Toole and Henry Lee Lucas. They came up. They were interviewed in relation to the Kristen David case. But as we know, they gave so many contradictory statements as to their travels and gave so many false confessions that this lead went where most of their stories went. Absolutely nowhere. As of this recording, Asotin County Detective Jackie Nichols has all of the evidence on all five cases compiled into multiple volumes, which are all available to the FBI. There is DNA that is degraded, but there's always the hope that testing will eventually get to where it can be used to find the killer, or in my view, more likely, the killers. I will leave the phone numbers of all the investigating agencies in the show notes. Because of the years they have spent working together on these cases, any tips will be followed up on regardless of who gets it. The one thing I can say after taking a look at these cases is that there are people dedicated to solving them. So if you know something, say something. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.